You can be opening your Bibles to, uh, we're going to start in Acts 11, and we'll be there in just a few moments. And uh, while you're turning there, I just want to say that I'm uh, really thankful to have the opportunity to be with all of you guys. I've, I've heard a lot about the in-town work and have always wanted to see what, how this is all uh, working out. And uh, I've really been encouraged by Josh and Kirby and the work that they're doing. And uh, wherever I get to travel, it's just true more and more to me that Christians are the best people on earth. Uh, we're, we're so blessed to be able to have a family wherever we go. Uh, and to think about what God has done for us in our lives. And uh, what we're going to be looking at in this series of lessons, I'm going to kind of base this out of Acts 11 with this event that happens. If you remember in Acts chapters like 7 and 8, you've got Stephen who gets martyred. And after Stephen is martyred, it kind of like breaks open all kinds of persecution against the Christians. And it causes a lot of Christians to be scattered all over the place, which is maybe who James is writing the book of James to and maybe who Peter's writing first and second Peter to. But from chapters eight through 11, we kind of get like this parenthetical section where we see the gospel going to unlikely people. It goes to Saul. It goes to Cornelius. But when we get back to chapter 11, we get back to those people that were scattered. And we see what they've been up to. Look at Acts chapter 11, starting in verse 19. Now, those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them. And a great number who believed turned to the Lord. So try to imagine this. You've got all of these people that have been scattered and the scattering of the Christians has actually proved to spread the gospel because wherever the Christians went, they were talking about the gospel. And so the news comes to the Christians in Jerusalem. Look at verse 22. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad and exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord. And then notice the next two things with steadfast purpose. So here's Barnabas. He's the son of encouragement. He goes up to this church at Antioch. Jerusalem sends him and he sees the grace of God. Have you ever seen the grace of God? Well, what does that look like? A bunch of people that have been so motivated by the grace of God that they're helping and serving and doing whatever they can uh, to please the Lord. He sees people doing that. But then his exhortation to them in verse 23 is to be faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. What we're going to do in these series of lessons is the first three are going to deal with our purpose. And the, the, uh, the next three tomorrow are going to deal with steadfastness or the strength that God gives us to be what we're supposed to be. So um, that'll kind of be used as the framework for what we're looking at. But you can go back to uh, Genesis chapter 12. And we're going to be looking at some things from Genesis chapter 12, dealing, first of all, with our purpose. <clears throat> and maybe one thing to say about this as you're turning there is that. When Barnabas and Paul and uh, Peter would have been going from church to church, using the scriptures to help these Christians be encouraged and have the motivation and understand their purpose, the scriptures that he would have been using would have been the Old Testament scriptures. 
that's what they would have had printed in the scrolls or written down in the scrolls at that time period. So the first three lessons are going to deal with our purpose from an Old Testament perspective. Now, try to think about this, first of all. People largely will draw their identity, like their meaning in life, their purpose from their ancestry. So I, for example, am, am from Nordic descent. My last name is actually a city in Norway. And so that means that I'm supposed to like Ludifisk, which I don't like. And it means that I'm supposed to like the cold weather, which I don't like. And that's why I'm in California now. Like, but it, your ancestry says something about your identity. It, it Maybe if your ancestry has a lot of sports addicts, that means that you're probably going to like sports. If your ancestry involves a lot of money, that means you're going to inherit some of that. And that's going to shape you in different kinds of ways. There's three world <laughs> religions that say that they stem from Abraham. You've got Judaism, you've got Islam, and you've got Christianity. All three of these religions say that our ancestry involves this man named Abraham, who, by the way, was a nomad, and he never wrote any books down or anything like that. But this guy is so extremely critical to these three religions. Now, we know as Christians that we are the true descendants of Abraham. Uh, Romans chapter 4 says that Abraham was our forefather. So here's my question for this lesson. What, do you know what it means for your identity and mission in life that you're connected to Abraham? When was the last time you thought about, you know, I'm a child of Abraham and that means this for my life. Well, in order to understand that, let's look at the call of Abraham. Look at Genesis chapter 12. This is not the first time we read about him, but this is where he's called by God. Look at Genesis chapter 12 verses 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. In this passage, God is telling Abraham, who we know from archaeology lived in Ur of the Chaldees, which was a very advanced town for its time. They had like indoor plumbing from what I've understood and heard and things like that. And so here God is telling Abraham, I want you to leave all of this behind and go to this land that I will show you. Now, he, he's not told what the land is going to be. He's, he has to trust God about that. But we know from Joshua chapter 24, verse 2, that Abraham grew up in a family that were pagan worshipers, worshiped false gods. So here's a man who's being asked by God to change your religion, like start worshiping me, change your location, um, give up your ancestry, and I'm going to make into you something different. In fact, did you notice in this text, just in these three verses, five times you'll see the word bless or blessed or blessing. The reason that God is calling Abraham out is so that he can make Abraham into a blessing. He's going to make him into a great nation. Now, look at verse 2 carefully again. Look at the way that verse 2 is worded. I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. And then the next two words, so that. All right, so that. Why does God want to make Abraham and why, why does God want to bless Abraham? So that he will be a blessing. Have you ever heard the phrase before that I've been blessed to be a blessing? Uh, blessed to be a blessing. That God is going to make something great into this guy and the purpose will be so that he'll turn around and bless others. Now, we have to pause at this moment and say something about this. When God blesses somebody, what's his expectation? 
God's expectation for people that he blesses is that they would turn around and be a blessing to other people. Blessings from God are not intended to be hoarded. They're intended to be shared. In fact, if you look at verse three, notice the widespread nature of these blessings. They're going to go to all the families of the earth. Now, that doesn't literally mean every single family is going to be blessed by Abraham's descendants and things like that, because there's still people in this text who are cursed. But the idea of it is that the the offer of the blessings are going to be made to all peoples, tribes, languages, everything like that will be offered to all people. And five times in this text, I will, I will, I will, I will. God is making unconditional promises to Abraham that I will use your offspring to bless all the families of the world. All right. Question about this. Why does the world need to be blessed at this point in the book of Genesis? Why does the world need to be blessed? I mean, you go back to Genesis chapters one and two. God makes everything and it's good, 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 very good. He tells Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply. They're blessed. He he tells the animals to be fruitful and multiply and they're blessed and everything like that. But after Genesis chapter two, you've got all of these blessings that are turned around with the curses. You've got the serpent that's cursed. You've got the ground that's cursed. You've got Canaan that's cursed. But try to think about three specific curses that happen from Genesis chapters like four through ten ish. You've got Adam and Eve being evicted from the garden. Like in the garden represents like presence with God and the life that God can give people. So now mankind has been kind of like torn away from the Lord. That's the first curse. Uh, one of the first curses. The second thing is that God tells Eve that there's going to be pain in childbearing. Now, I used to think that the pain in childbearing was just that the moment of delivery was going to be hard. And my, I, we have two children. Uh, our first kid took 30 hours to deliver. The next one took 38 hours to deliver. And I kept having to rub my wife's back. And nobody has any sympathy for how sore my hands got. Um, but, uh, so it, but it's... It, it, Indeed, when somebody's giving birth, it's going to hurt. But it's not just that. Think about the scope of the book of Genesis. Were there like baby wars between Rachel and Leah? Was there infertility problems? Pain and childbearing didn't just mean that it was going to hurt more when you gave birth. It's the whole package is going to get harder. So that's the second curse. The third one is that the ground is going to be cursed. It's going to be thorns and briars that are going to be growing up from the ground now. Now think about those three curses and then the promises to Abraham. Have you ever thought before that the curses in Genesis 3 are all reversed in the promises to Abraham? So, for example, when Abraham is told that he's going to be a blessing to the world, he's going to be used as like a priestly nation to go between the people and God and connect people back with God. So he's going to bless people in that way. What about the pain and childbearing? Uh, The nation grows and multiplies. God says, I'm going to make you into a great nation. They're not going to have many problems with childbearing. Look at the book of Exodus. They're, They're multiplying like crazy. And then the third one, the land being cursed with the thorns and briars, God's bringing them into the promised land. And how is it described in the Bible? Flowing with milk and honey. No thorns and briars, at least at that point. So all three of the curses in Genesis 3 are going to be reversed through the offspring of Abraham. Now, if we were to flash forward about 400 years from this point on in Genesis 12, go to Exodus 19. At this point, uh, Abraham had Isaac, Isaac had Jacob, Jacob had 12 sons, and then 
at this point in Exodus 19, after the Exodus, conservative estimates say that they have about 2 million people in their population. Now, why do those 2 million people exist? To be a blessing, right? Like this is the purpose of the nation of Israel. This same purpose is restated in Exodus 19 verses 4 through 6. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. In verse 6, God tells uh, Moses that this nation is going to be a kingdom of priests. Now, the role of the priest was, again, to be an intermediary, like it's the go-between between the people and God. Amongst the nation of Israel, you had the Levites. And the Levites were like functioning as the priests for the people. But in this text, it says that you guys will be a nation of priests, that the whole nation is supposed to be like a priestly nation. Well, what does that mean? That God is taking the people of Israel, calling them out of darkness into his marvelous light, and then saying that you guys are the, supposed to be the people that teach the lost world about me. That's the purpose of the nation of Israel. Now, I, ever since I, I, I didn't grow up in a Christian family, I became a Christian when I was 19. But when I first started reading the Bible, my, my misconception of the nation of Israel was that God chose the nation of Israel just to bring Jesus in the world. And I don't mean just in any kind of light way. But in other words, I hadn't really thought too much about the fact that God had actually given the nation of Israel the mission of being a light to the world. He did. Now, uh, we'll get back to some of those thoughts in just a second. But notice in verse 5, if they were ever going to be a priestly nation, what did they have to do in verse 5? They had to keep and obey the covenant. They had to obey God. You're never going to be a blessing, God is saying to the nation, to the nations around you, unless you take obedience to me seriously. Have you ever met anybody before that said that anybody who wants to talk about serious obedience to the Lord is like a Pharisee? To which I would say that the problem with the Pharisees is that they didn't care about obedience enough. If you want to be a blessing to the world, God is saying, you've got to obey. But what's the motivation for the obedience in verse four? In verse four, the motivation for obedience is that God had carried them out of Egypt. Now obey. Have you ever thought before that before God ever gave the Ten Commandments, he gave the ten plagues? Before he ever told the nation of Israel, obey, he first delivers them. Do you ever get that flipped in your own mind? That in order for God to ever deliver me, in order for God to ever save me, I've got to obey perfectly, which you're never going to do. God says here with the nation of Israel, I want you to obey me out of gratitude for what I've done for you. God's done so many great things for them. They were blessed. This has to cause us to ask the question, then, well, were they ever a blessing to anybody else? Now, I'll, I'll go ahead and break this open uh, just for discussion, if you guys can think of this. Before we throw the nation of Israel under the bus, can you think of anybody that the nation of Israel did bless who was a Gentile? Can you guys name anybody? Rahab. Rahab. Good, good example. Another one? Jonah, uh, yeah, the whole nation of Nineveh. Yeah, it's Syria. Ruth is a good one. Ruth the Moabite. 
Uh, Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, becomes a god worshiper. You remember David's, one of David's mighty men, he slept with his wife, Uriah the, Uri the what? Hittite. That's, that's not an Israelite. So you look at David's life, by the way, there's all kinds of Gentiles who connected themselves to him. What about uh, the time of King Solomon? This, the time of, of King Solomon is probably when the nation of Israel blessed the most amount of pagans. Because you think about the Queen of Sheba, for example. She travels 1,400 miles to listen to the wisdom of Solomon and things like that. All right, so the nation of Israel had some success in blessing those around them. But overall, how did the nation do? Do we give them a thumbs up or a thumbs down? Big thumbs down. Not even a sideways thumbs. Uh, think about Genesis chapter 12. In Genesis chapter 12, God tells Abraham... I will use you to bless the world. And then he turns around because of a famine and he goes to Egypt. And what does he bring to Egypt? Some lies about his wife and then some curses. So you can summarize Genesis 12 like this. Abraham is told you will bless the world. He turns around and starts cursing the Egyptians. That's a foreshadowing of what the whole nation is going to do. In fact, go to Isaiah 5. In Isaiah 5, there's several passages in the prophets that you can go to that will show you the failure of the nation of Israel to be what God wanted them to be. Uh, go to Isaiah 5 and look. We'll start in verse 7 and then work our way back. Isaiah 5, 7 says, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed, for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. So in this text... We're going to see that God is going to describe the nation of Israel, according to verse 7, as this vineyard. And uh, the vineyard didn't produce for God what he wanted it to produce. All right, so keep that in mind. Start in verse 1. Go to verse 1. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it. He hewed out a wine vat in it, and he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. Uh, do you like love songs? In verse 1, it says that this is going to be a love song. And uh, growing up, we, we, my wife and I lived in Nashville for a couple of years, and I, we didn't really get much into country music. But my understanding of a lot of love songs is that a good love song is when I love you and you love me back. That's like the happy ones. The sad love songs is when I love you, but you don't love me back and my heart's broken. That's the kind of love song that this is. So God is going to sing this love song for his vineyard. Look what God has done with the vineyard in verse two. Look at all the verbs in verse two. God dug, cleared, planted, built, hewed, looked. He did everything for the nation of Israel, for them to bear fruit, to bring glory to his name to the other nations. He did everything for them to do that. And when it came time for him to finally reap some of the grapes, what kind did he get? He got wild grapes. When I was in college, uh, one of the things that I would do on a very regular basis was I'd go to the grocery store and get a pineapple because that's my favorite fruit. And I would cut it up and I would like, I like tried to figure out how do you pick out the best pineapple and like, there's all kinds of theories about that. And if anybody knows what the best theory is, please tell me about that. Cause I never did a good job picking up pineapple. So you'd spend like three bucks on a pineapple, you'd cut it up and then you try eating it. And it was disgusting sometimes. Now that was frustrating enough. And I only spent three bucks. Can you imagine God who delivers this nation of Israel? He sets them up with his law 
that is so much better and superior to any of the other ancient laws. Like he blesses them immensely. And then he waits. And then nothing. Question. Have you ever been, would you say that you've been privileged in your life? You grew up maybe in a pretty stable home environment. Uh, you were blessed to be around people who really helped you understand the Bible. You were blessed. And all. Have you ever squandered your privileges? You ever not appreciated them the way that you ought to? Look what God's going to do with these people. Look at verse uh, three. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there for me to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, it yielded wild grapes. Now look at verses five and six and look at all the I will statements. And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. When this nation squandered their privileges, God says, I'm going to utterly destroy you. In fact, so much so that in verse six, you see the thorns and briars. What's significant about the thorns and briars? The very nation that was going to be brought into the land flowing with milk and honey that was supposed to reverse the curses of the ground where there would be no thorns and briars has become just like the world and has been cursed just like the rest of the world now. Thorns and briars coming up. We're going to come back to the thorns and briars in the next lesson, but we just have to pause and say something about this. For the nation of Israel to have lived out their purpose did not just mean that they had a biological tie to Abraham. In Isaiah 5, we've got the biological connection to Abraham. And they could have walked around and said, well, we're the children of Abraham. We're the children of Abraham. We're tied to him. And then God says, yeah, but you're not living with the same faith that he lived. This brings up attention then. Well, how is God going to keep his promises? Because in Genesis 12, he kept saying, I will, I will, I will, I will make you into a blessing. I will use you to bless the other nations. How is God going to keep his promises? Imagine that you're a Jew and every Sabbath you went to Sabbath school and you were learning the Old Testament prophets. And then like you start, uh, you're living under the time of like Isaiah and Micah. And then like hot off the presses is a new book that God has published because you got the new scroll, things like that. And so you're like in Sabbath school and now you're starting to study Isaiah. And uh, you know that the Babylonians are going to come and start attacking you and things like this. And, and then you've got passages in Isaiah, like these servant songs that says that there's going to be this servant of Israel who will open up the eyes of the Gentiles and he will actually gather back the nation of Israel for himself and then use them to bless other people. You've got all these promises in the book of Isaiah and Jeremiah about this new covenant that God's going to make. And then you're a Jew and you're wondering, well, when is that going to happen? Like, when is God going to finally fulfill his promises? The first verse of the New Testament says that Jesus is the son of David, the son of Abraham. Why does it matter that Jesus is a Jew? Why does it matter that Jesus is in the lineage of Abraham? Why does it matter that so many times in the Gospels, you see Jesus embodying the nation of Israel? So, for example, the nation of Israel wanders in the wilderness for 40 years and they keep succumbing to temptation. They keep failing in the wilderness. Jesus is tempted in the wilderness for 40 days and he doesn't sin one time. Jesus is being depicted as the perfect Israelite that has come to bless the world. Now, um, go over to Galatians 3. We're going to look at Galatians 3 in just a moment. 
but the maybe one of the obvious points in all of this is that Jesus is the perfect offspring of Abraham that's come to bless the world. Now, in your life, would you say that Jesus has blessed you? Okay, uh, I didn't grow up in a Christian family. When I became a Christian, my family thought that I joined a cult. And so my new family became Christians. That's why I like to say that Christians are the best people in the world because uh, I've been embraced and accepted by them in ways that my family never would. Give, been given a new family. Like, that's such a blessing. Or how about the blessing of a new lifestyle that Jesus has taught you? Like, before a lot of people were ever coming to the Lord, they had addictions in their life. They had things that they were enslaved to. They planned their schedule around the sins that they were committing. And then Jesus comes along and he says, I can deliver you from that bondage. And then he does it because you start listening to what he says and you're blessed because you have a new lifestyle. Or he gives you the blessing of a new hope that you never knew what your future would hold and you always had a dim kind of picture of what your future was going to look like. And then Jesus comes along and he says, I'm going to let you be in a place where there's no tears. Uh, You ever cry much in this broken world? Like we've all been blessed by Jesus. All right, so what a lot of, what, what we, might, we might be tempted to do with this is go, okay, Jesus is the offspring of Abraham that blessed us. Great. That's awesome, right? We can't stop there. In Galatians chapter 3, look what Galatians chapter 3 says as the chapter wraps up in verses 27 to 29. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ... There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. You are all one in Christ. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Whoever has been baptized into Christ in verse 28 is said to be one with Christ. Remember when uh, Saul was persecuting the Christians and then Jesus says to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Why did Jesus take the persecution so personally? Because Christians are the body of Christ. They're one with Christ, right? Which means that whatever Jesus's mission was, has also been given to the Christian. So here's what this means. In verse 29, we are heirs according to Abraham's offspring. What does it mean to be the offspring of Abraham? Here's what it means. You've been given the same promises. You've been given the same mission. That in Christ, you've been blessed. And the reason for that is so that you will be a blessing to other people. All of us would say we've been blessed by Jesus. What's the responsibility? You don't hoard those blessings. You don't hoard all the Bible knowledge that you have and never share it with anybody else. You don't hoard all of the strength that you've gained from the new family in the Lord and not go out with that strength and help other people. If you've been blessed by the Lord, the responsibility is to bless other people. First uh, Peter two, nine and 10. I'll just go ahead and read this. It says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. It's been given to us now, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Try to think about Abraham. Was he called out of darkness into God's light? called from a pagan family into God's light. What about the nation of Israel? Called out of the darkness of Egypt to God's light into the promised land. What about us? Called out of darkness into God's light to be the royal priesthood. Well, how do we bless the world? By proclaiming God's excellencies. My dad, a couple of years ago, wrote me an email 
as we've tried to talk about the Bible and things like this, he wrote me an email saying, basically quoting from Richard Dawkins, that God is an egomaniac. The, the, the God of the Bible is a terrible, vindictive, genocidal God because he wanted the Canaanites to be killed and things like this. And uh, he's surrounded himself with people that say a lot of bad things about God. He's been reading a lot of books that say that God is not good. We live in a world where uh, people decide to, to fly planes into towers and where babies are born with cancer and all kinds of brokenness happens in this world. Most people, I don't think, have a high view of God. God's not good because look at all the things that happen in the world. Well, what's God's argument against people who say things like that? The royal priesthood. Where God takes these people that used to have no mercy and he changes them and he cleans them up and he makes them into something that they never could have been by themselves. And then he says, my argument is a living, breathing, walking person. Look at what I've done for this person as they proclaim my excellencies. Makes people think differently about God. Think about maybe some uh, applications of all this then. Personally speaking, what am I doing to bless those around me? Just in even basic conversations, could, could I just be more bold in just bringing up the fact that I'm part of a church? Just to see if that little comment might go somewhere. Um, could I maybe be more uh, proactive about having people into my home? There's something about the human species or what, there's something about human beings that when you eat food together, you just become more relaxed and you can have deeper conversations. Is there anybody that you can invite to lunch and just try to have a conversation with? Uh, maybe personally, are there people that you know that you could try to be more proactive about being a blessing to? What about corporately as a church? What's the purpose of a local church? Why did God in his wisdom create local churches or want local churches to exist? It's so that when we come together, we're stirred up to love and good works, which happens outside the walls, right? Love and good works, good deeds to show people what the Lord has done for us because we've been blessed by him. Uh, we might talk about some more practical things maybe in the next lesson with all of that, but maybe just to wrap this up. There, there's a lot of religions, again, that fight over who's, whether or not they're tied biologically to Abraham some of those nations will fight over territories and things like that. But the fight that we do is against the sin in our own hearts, but then also the fight of trying to be a blessing to other people. At weddings, have you ever seen those fountain cups where like you've got a top cup that's being filled up with water and then it goes to the next row of the other cups below it and then the next row and the next row and the next row? Why is it the case that any of those cups can pour themselves into the ones below them? Because they first have to be filled up. They have to be blessed before they can ever be a blessing to the other cups. That's how the Lord works. Jesus is the top cup. And the more we draw on the blessings from him, the more we're able to give to other people. He becomes our strength for that. Uh, I thank you for your good attention. We're going to be looking at some other passages uh, today, this morning, on understanding our purpose from the Old Testament. But we're going to have a break now.